Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class three of our class on Dune. <clears throat> Before we get started, I just want to uh, begin with a couple announcements just to, uh, to keep everybody abreast of current events here in the Mythgard world. Uh, first of all, we have uh, the registration for Mythmoot is reaching an important point. The end of August is the time at which the uh, the early lower registration price for Mythmoot is going to is going to go away. The regular registration will begin on September 1st. So if you are thinking about uh, coming to Mythmoot, which I strongly recommend, um, You'll you you'll want to get on that so you can get the lower price. Um, just to say a little bit about MythMoot, I know some of you are kind of new to you know to who we are and to what we do. Um, uh, you know, a conference, uh, you know, a, sort of a an academic conference might not sound particularly exciting, perhaps uh, if you're not an academic. Um, but I really just want to encourage you to uh, to to think about it. MythMoot is designed. MythMoot is the the sort of annual, annual thus far, uh, conference of the Mythgard Institute. And our goal is to do, well, really just to do like what I'm doing, you know, what I'm doing in this class series, like I began doing with my Tolkien Professor podcast, you know, bringing, you know, serious and in-depth academic discussion that's, that's, you know, accessible and fun to people. Um, it's not a conference just jammed with sort of you know, a relentless onslaught of, you know, paper session after paper session. You you will get to hear from lots of really interesting people. You'll get to be involved in lots of, uh, you know, discussions and, 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 and fun. Um, it, we really do, uh, you know, want to make this a place which is just sort of, you know, a celebration both of the academic and intellectual side and also just fan fun as well. Um, you know, certainly when you come to MythMood, you are... You are among friends. Uh, you know, you are among people who are who are who are fans and lovers of these you know of these works as as you are. And uh, it's been really wonderful. The first couple years we've done it, we've had two of them now. This coming one is our third. Uh, it will be happening in the second weekend of January, January the weekend of January tenth, twenty fifteen. Um, and uh, it, it really it really should be wonderful. So. Want to urge you to think about that, um, and like I said, the our our early bird pricing uh, expires at the end of August. So, if you go to the MythGuard homepage and look at the MythMoot link over in the Quick Links box on the right hand side, uh, you'll be able to find the information on the conference. Secondly, we also have uh, even sooner than that our fall courses begin. We are merely a mere week and a half away from starting the fall semester at Signum University and the Mythgard Institute. Our classes this fall should be a lot of fun. I'm doing my Lewis and Tolkien classes, I think I've talked about before, looking, doing a careful look at both the works of Tolkien and the works of C.S. Lewis, and, and looking at the, the times when they were addressing similar things, really to sort of begin to see them sort of in dialogue with each other through their fiction. Um, and I think there's some really fascinating things that we can see when we really look carefully putting those two, uh, those two authors' works together. Um, we also have a uh, new class by Douglas Anderson, The Roots of the Mountain, where he's going to be looking at early fantasy, at the fantasy that inspired Tolkien. So if you've ever been curious about digging into that stuff, no human being on planet Earth knows that material better than Doug Anderson. Um, uh, it's uh, really just every conversation I've ever had with him has really blown me away uh, on that score. Um, so it should be really fantastic. And of course, uh, if you are interested in Dune and, and other science fiction works, a wonderful opportunity this fall. Part one of Amy Sturgis's science fiction uh, survey course. Um, 
in this class, you know, in the Dune class, we're doing, you know, what I love to do best. We're doing a lot of cl of close reading. You know, going to be looking a lot at the, you know, the sort of the, you know, the themes and the ideas of this book as they unfold. But we haven't been talking about, and we're not going to talk about um, much of the really big picture there. We're just kind of reading it, in a sense. Um, kind of reading it in a sense in a uh, in in a um, uh, in a vacuum, almost. Not quite in a vacuum, but almost in a vacuum. Um, and certainly not going to be thinking about the role that this book, the very large role that this book played in 20th century science fiction and uh, the way in which it is in uh, in a sort of conversation with the works that came before it and after it. Um, that sort of the bigger picture of science fiction and what science fiction has meant uh, to the modern world, this is something that Amy Sturgis does fantastically well. Dr. Sturgis is just such a wonderful teacher and does that kind of thing, looking at the big picture you know, of the, of the unrolling of this genre over time uh, in ways that uh, that I've never seen before. It's just fantastic. So if you like Dune and you're really interested in this stuff, uh, treat yourself uh, to an Amy Sturgis class on that. Again, if you go to our fall classes page or to our current courses page on MythGuard, you'll be able to see more detail, uh, including uh, you know a video where where uh, Dr. Sturgis explains a little bit more about the class. So I want to especially recommend that one. Anyway. Let's move on to Dune Class 3, um, having kept you abreast of current affairs. On his, uh, do at the beginning what I often do at the beginning of class, which is sort of think back over where we ended up uh, last time. We spent the last half of class... Oh, and by the way, I apologize, I forgot to uh, mute my phone. Apparently, uh, my, uh, my older son just lost his tooth moments ago. I was texted a picture of my son without his tooth, so there we are. Breaking news in the Olsen household there. Uh, <laughs> sorry for the uh, text notification there in the middle of in, in the middle of class. So as I said, we spent the we spent the last um, the last part of class looking at the character of Duke Leto, and you know I think it's important for us to. Uh, <laughs> Several really practical suggestions being made. Uh, Kevin and uh, uh, Kevin Morgan and Mike Thurway both are suggesting that he should carve and make a knife out of his tooth. Uh, and uh, uh, Doug Overmeyer is saying uh, at least there was no poison capsule embedded. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, he's all prepared for that surgery now, Doug. Um, oops, spoiler. <clears throat> Never mind. Um, Chris is asking what the current value of a tooth is these days. They won't accept less than a buck a tooth these days. I used to get a quarter and consider myself grateful, but uh, no, no. Yeah, uh, the price of teeth is, you know, the, uh, you know, the tooth fairy has been driven nearly to destitution in these days, so it's, uh, it's tough. But uh, anyhow, yeah. So as I would say, I shall make a third valiant attempt to get back to, uh, to our current topic. So Duke Leto. Remember the context on Leto Atreides, sort of the position that he plays, the role that he has in the opening part of the book. We didn't talk about that all that much. We sort of just be began to dig into the passages that uh, that sort of describe him and talk. And of course, those 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 sort of deliciously symbolic passages with the portrait and the bull's head. But I think it's important to recall where he stands. He is. Wow, this makes it sound terribly trite, doesn't it? He is the good guy, right? He is the one who is standing against the, 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 you know, the monstrous Harkonnens. We see the Atreides and the Harkonnens poised against each other. And, and given 
as clear as possible, right, the cues. It's not just a question of, well, our protagonist happens to be in the Atreides household, so of course he's going to think that, you know, his family is the good guys and their enemies are the bad guys. Um, but, you know, it might be more complicated than that. Well, I mean, of course, we will see the world in more complex terms, and Paul will come to see the world in more complex terms. But there's no question, really, that the Harkonnens are the bad guys, right? That was, uh, that was relatively... That was relatively clear, um, and there's a there's easily a chance. Therefore, you know, Duke Leto has this sort of iconic role in this sense. He is the leader of the good guys, right? He is the noble Duke, um, as opposed to the hideous and monstrous Baron Harkonnen. Um, we saw right away, you know, the, you know, at the beginning of our first class, we were talking about the sort of suggestive parallel between, you know, the test of the Gom Jabbar and the, you know, the the, the Atreides um, entrance into Arrakis, right? You know, the ways in which he seems to be. I mean, it's easy to sort of make of him a kind of an archetypal figure, right? He is, you know, he is he is the noble leader. He is um, he is. Uh, uh, you know the self-sacrificing one, the you know sort of the 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 icon of all that is good, uh, all that is noble, all that is worthy. And you'll note in our discussion from last time how far um, Frank Herbert goes to complicate that. Right? He does not allow Leto Atreides to simply be this sort of exaggerated representative of all that is good and noble in humankind. Again, he's going to become. A fig he's gonna die. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> the Duke's gonna die. Um, uh, after his death, of course, it, it, he could very easily play that role even more emphatically, right? Again, to be, in retrospect, you know, Duke Leto of beloved memory, he could easily become this sainted figure um, in, uh, in, Paul's, uh, in Paul's memory. Um, Right, Nancy. Exactly as Nancy's pointing out. Of course, even if we, even if we were completely deaf to every hint and suggestion and 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 foreboding in the text itself, uh, uh, Princess Irulan has quite flatly dis discussed his death at at uh, uh, at at various points. Um, so yes, again, this book goes out of its way to make its own spoilers, or to defeat its own spoilers, or to integrate, really, its own spoilers uh, into the story. Um, but again, before that's allowed to happen, right, before he's allowed to become in the reader's mind, you know, this sort of icon of goodness, and then become, you know, uh, this sort of revered saint uh, and sort of totem for Paul uh, for the rest of his life, we get this really interesting study. We are prompted, I think, as readers. The, the whole bull and portrait thing, um, the number one thing that I take from that is that we are being pushed as readers to think about this, right? Not just to kind of accept Duke Leto equals good guy, right? Duke Leto equal Duke Leto is awesome. Moving on, right? We're not allowed to stay there by the text. We're forced to think about it. We're forced to sit there and stare at that bull's head in portrait like Jessica does when they're propped up against the boxes out of which she's unpacked them, right? Um, and what do we see? Well, you know, we saw several things in looking at the, the, the portrait in the bull's head. Uh, we saw the way in which the, um, the putting up of the, of the bull's head and the portrait across the room from each other in the dining room um, 
is a constant reminder of death on the one hand, right? You know, to re not, not only to remember my father who is no more, but to remember that which killed him and to see his blood still upon its horns, right? Um, to have that permanently memorialized uh, in the home, not just the father, you know, you know, not just his Duglido's father memorialized, but specifically the death of Duglido's father memorialized in the home, um, and to have that juxtaposed with the dining room, right? Um, this sort of centerpiece of courtesy and uh, uh, and hospitality in the house, but even when it's not being used for hospitality, even when they're not um, having high-powered dinner parties like we get at the end of today's reading. Um, even when they're having family dinners, there's this constant reminder, right? And we learn that they don't have family dinners that often because Jessica can't handle it. Um, what else do we get from there? We get uh, the bravura, an important word, um, the bravura of the old duke, right? His defiant facing of death, his courting death for show, right? Not bravery in battle, right? But to enter into the bull ring, to put himself in the path of a charging bull for fun, right? But not just for fun, not for his own private amusement, right? For the entertainment of the crowds, to make a statement before the crowds. Um, and, you know, this, that, you know, the old duke as bullfighter um, with the horrible, huge, enormous black bull, uh, you know, facing across the way, you know, we were talking last time about how that serves as sort of a reminder, you know, it's, it's very suggestively recalling uh, the situation now on Arrakis and the way in which Duke Lido has placed himself in the path of danger and all of the great houses are looking on, right? The entire Lansrod is like the audience, right? Staring at this particular bullfight as Duke Lido has stepped out into the ring with the Harkonnen bull uh, bearing down on him. Um, and again, you can take that in a couple different ways, right? That could be a noble thing. It can be a morally dodgy thing. It can at least be a foolish thing, perhaps. And then, of course, the last thing that I would um, uh, that I would point to, uh, you know, thinking back again over the stuff that we talked about last time, is the whole human versus animal thing. The the, the to me the conspicuousness of these things, you know, which get like a neon symbolism light put over them, right, by the narrator in the text. Uh, and, and you know, and that right after we got, you know, at the, at the beginning of the book, this whole human versus animal dichotomy thing, and we're told that that was essential to the whole plan, you know, sort of what the Bene Gesserit are all about, right, is separating human from animal, and, uh, and Jessica's condemnation uh, of the old duke to say, uh, you know, that there's, there's, there's really no difference between, the, it makes no difference, you know, the bull's head uh, or the old duke. Um, and, um, you know, so, we, you know, we have that, quite, on the one hand, there's, you know, there's the contrast, right, there's the bullfighter versus the bull. It's clear that one is in control and the other is not, right? One is being goaded and manipulated uh, and set up for slaughter and the other is not, right? But which one is which, right? We know that in the old Duke's case, uh, the bull will have the last laugh, right? Well, no, because the bull got slaughtered immediately afterwards, right? Um, so I guess, in, you know, I guess it left just slightly longer than the old Duke did. Um, but that's kind of an interesting parallel too, isn't it? It sort of puts, uh, you know, the adds in this third figure to the equation, kind of like the emperor, right? Anyhow. Um, uh, 
we got Jessica's animosity for the old Duke, her hatred for him, um, and how she blames the elements of Leto that are like him on him, right? So she, you know, talking about how him being two people, one of whom she loves and admires, and the other of whom is basically the side that's like his father, and whom she seems not only, uh, you know, to dislike but actively to despise. Um, but we also see Leto's reverence for his father. Remember the sort of the contrast. I didn't bring this out last time, but remember the contrast between the choice that he's remember that conversation where he says, you know, I uh, I I I defer to you shamelessly and other things, right? But I, but I, but I can't in this, right? I'm not going to put our the ancest the ancestral dignity of the house before your digestion, right? And remember, we've just seen Jessica earlier on being berated by the Reverend Mother for putting her love for Duke Leto and his desire for an heir above the entire Bene Gesserit plan, right? She defied uh, the direct order of the Bene Gesserits. This is something which, for Je from Jessica's point of view, you know, within Jessica's own personal world, is at least as strong as the ancestral dignity of House Atreides to the Duke, right? She is Bene Gesserit. That is her identity. Um, and she was brought in, she was arguably bred and brought in for a particular purpose, groomed and instructed to play a particular role, and she refused it, right? The thing which was, in its, in, 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 from the Bene Gesserit perspective, the most, the fundamental purpose of her existence, and she refused to do it for his sake because she loved him, because she couldn't bear to deny him what he wanted. Now, I'm not saying that the situations are parallel, right? I mean, how important having a ducal heir was to, to Leto Atreides is a little different from her being like, I hate to eat dinner underneath the portrait of your dad. I mean, like, I, you know, I'm not trying to say they're exactly the same, um, but, but I think that there is a kind of parallel there. Um, and we can see her anger... Um, at him and and his reverence for his father as much as she despises the old duke and what the old duke represents um, he clearly admires the old duke remember also or I should say note in passing we'll talk more about Thufir Halat next time we're not going to talk about Thufir a whole lot today um, but he's going to be a, a more important next time and maybe the time after that but um just notice in passing Hawat's respect for the old Duke. Remember when uh, Duke Leto made that really sort of cutthroat decision um, in the meeting, the one that Paul was like, oh, that's the wrong thing to do. He's totally screwing up right here. Thufur Hawat praised him um, for the conclusion that he drew. for the, And he said, and he praised him by saying, you know, it was a plan that was worthy. Uh, uh, was worthy of the Duke, your grandfather, right? So not the old Duke up there, but his father. But, but again, like, that ancestral dignity, right? Hawat is connected with that. He has seen three generations of Atreides. Um, so, so again, we see Hawat as endorsing that. The friction between Hawat and Jessica, on which, more next time, um, the friction between Hawat and Jessica uh, and the old Duke, I think, being not exactly a... a, a uh, bone of contention between them. I mean, it's not like Jessica and Thufur Hawat are like, you know, we just can't see eye to eye on the old Duke. Yeah, it's pretty much, you know, if, if it weren't for that, we'd be BFFs. But I just, you know, no. Obviously, there's more to it than that. Um, but the, the, but what I would say 
is that the way in which they look at the old duke seems to me suggestive. It, it, it tells us something about exactly what does divide Jessica from Thufur Hoab. Um, anyway, uh, the other thing that we saw, the final thing that we're looking at from Leto, is uh, his the desperate risk that he's taking for Paul's sake and how extensively self-sacrificial he really feels it to be. The way that he compares, um, the way that he compares um, the you know the planet Arrakis to like a hell that he's come to before he's uh, before he's dead. Um, the, the you know his longing for Caledon, but not only those things. Um, the the extent to which his outlook, as you know, in that last passage we were looking at, um, how his outlook seems almost to echo the Reverend Mother's ominous words, which hit Paul so heavily, right? For the father, nothing. Duke Leto seems to see that too. He doesn't seem to really have any hopes for himself. <clears throat> his hopes are only for Paul. That this might be, um, uh, this might be something that will that will work out in the long run for Paul, even though it's unlikely to for him. We see his choice to gamble everything on the Fremen, um, and to remember him, we should remember his genuine helplessness, right? He can't do, he had very few options, right? I mean, we can compare his coming to Arrakis as the bullfighter entering the bullring, but presumably the old duke didn't have a gun to his head forcing him out into the bullring, right? Duke Leto kind of does have a gun to his head. I mean, you know, people talk about, oh, he could have gone renegade, right? He did have an option. Well, yeah, but um, uh, it wasn't a very attractive option, right? He could have, you know, so, but, but again, the fact that that choice exists, I think, is important um, because we see the two options in his mind are both of them unattractive, right? One is to turn aside from his ancestral dignity to turn his back on the entire empire. Right? Remember, he talks about other houses that rely upon them, right? They're, they're you know, people that, friends, that, you know, are other houses which they, they, they believe and hope to be their allies. Um, he seems to be, you know, the, the he, he, you know, we, we're, we're told that he, he speaks for many of the other houses, that they rely upon his leadership uh, and, his, and his wisdom. It would be turning away, you know, not, again, not just from ancestral dignity in a kind of a prideful sense, right? Oh, we would have to become a very humble house if we moved, if we if we went renegade. But, you know, they would. Um, it would be risky. It wouldn't be safe, right? They would have to hide, and uh, and they, he would be turning his back on what he clearly perceives as his responsibilities too. So there's that. On the other hand, there's doing this thing, and rolling the dice on the one thing that the Emperor and the Harkonnens have seemed to underestimate, which is the Fremen, right? His belief that this could actually bring him out of the impossible situation, the theoretically impossible situation, um, which he is, uh, which he is uh, placed in. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brandon, I think that's a good way to think about it. Brandon Lovesy says, uh, you know, uh, um, if he had gone renegade, the lesser houses, uh, uh, sorry, he could have gone renegade, but he had the lesser houses looking to him for leadership. It would have been cowardly and offending to the ancestral dignity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he would have to, 
it's not just that House Atreides would cease to be one of the great house. He would cease to he would cease to be Leto Atreides, right? He would cease to he would he would have to betray what he really believes and what he believes are the defining characteristics of House Atreides, right? What why it's worth living as 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 Duke Atreides. There are principles that he believes in and which he associates with his house. Um, so anyway, um, uh, with that in mind, I want to begin with a couple more Duke Leto passages here. Um, we're going to get a lot of Duke Leto here uh, before his inevitable and oft-discussed death. Um, and we get some really interesting passages from him uh, in, uh, in, in today's reading. Um, You're just tired, father. I am tired, the Duke agreed. I'm morally tired. The melancholy degeneration of the houses has afflicted me at last, perhaps, and we were such strong people once. Paul spoke in quick anger. Our house hasn't degenerated, hasn't it? The Duke turned, faced his son, revealing dark circles beneath hard eyes, a cynical twist of mouth. I should wed your mother, make her my duchess, yet my unwedded state gives some houses hope they may yet ally with me through their marriageable daughters, he shrugged. So I... Mother has explained this to me. Nothing wins more loyalty for a leader than an air of bravura, the Duke said. I, therefore, cultivate an air of bravura. You lead well, Paul protested. You govern well. Men follow you willingly and love you. My propaganda corps is one of the finest, the Duke said. And, of course, he says even more bitingly later on um, that... Uh, uh, you know, how would the people know that uh, they love the Duke if we didn't tell them? Um, yeah, <laughs> Brandon loves, he says, uh, we're 25 minutes in and we're at the first slide. It must be a record. No way, Brandon. Man, that's not even close to a record. I, I think I once went an hour and a half without getting to the first slide. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's still a pretty good effort. I'm willing to give it that. Um, okay. Um, Michael uh, Chaskovsky says this is a very this shows a very jaded view of politics and politicians. Yeah, him, you know, a, a very, uh, um, a very. Oh, I see. Brandon is teasing me the other way. Brandon was saying it's the record for the earliest ever getting to the first slide. Ha ha. Um, uh, yeah, Erica Smith thinking along the same lines. Michael. Tchaikovsky, so talking about jaded politicians, yes, we see him um, both sort of seeing himself here, not as a leader, right, not talking about the ancestral dignity, thinking about himself as politician, essentially, posturing, the air, an air of bravura, right, I cultivate an air of bravura. What's the difference between leading well, governing well, Men following you willingly and loving you. This is Paul's version of it, right? And Duke Leto's version of simply cultivating an air of bravura. Um, the two things are not uh, are not are not um, exclusive, right? You can you can have both. You can cultivate an air uh, consciously while still leading well and governing well, which presumably means you know with justice and uh, and 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 compassion. And we see Duke Leto showing these things, um, but notice how he believes this is part of a big picture, right? Remember back to you know the old Duke and Jessica's talking about you know he is two men and all of that stuff. It's almost like he's sort of aware of this, right? Um, 
The melancholy degeneration of the great houses has afflicted me at last, perhaps. We were such a strong people once. This is pointing beyond the Atreides here to all of the great houses. All of the great houses are in a state of degeneracy, he says. Hard to forget in the middle of that conversation the Bene Gesserit breeding plan, right? And, um, I don't know. Um, uh, that is to say, no, he's, this is not an accusation, right? Um, but uh, it is, um, it's a fascinating other side of the coin, right? On the one hand, we have the Reverend Mother talking about how history is progressing and how they are attempting to steer things through their genetic plans. Now we have somebody just looking at the results of many, many generations of uh, breeding planning by the Bene Gesserits and saying, this is degenerating, right? We were a strong people once, we're not anymore. Um, Paul is, uh, uh, Carolyn Morehouse accusing uh, um, Paul of having a Boromir moment saying our house hasn't degenerated. Um, uh, he certainly is giving himself a giving himself and his father a little bit of a pep talk here, right? We see him looking at the looking at the bright side, right? Insisting that these pessimistic uh, uh, and, 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 sar and sar sardonic things that the Duke is saying are not true, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jonathan Spencer has a really interesting point. Says, the Duke feels like he is a pawn of fate. His training and responsibilities leave him no choices. The house is not strong enough to do otherwise. Um, yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily moral degeneration, or not exclusively moral degeneration. Right? He says he's morally tired. Um, uh, but when he describes the melancholy degeneration, there is more than one way we could possibly understand that, or even more than one way in which he means it at the time, right? That he might feel it in both ways. That the fact that the houses are degenerating morally is sad, is a melancholy idea, but also um, his moral tiredness is a result of, the, of the, the political degeneration of the great houses. They're not as strong as they once were. Um, we see, remember, the Arrakis... The Arrakis problem, right? The Arrakis uh, situation, the quandary that House Atreides finds itself in, is not just a result of its rivalry with the Harkonnens, but the manipulation of the Emperor, right? The Emperor who is trying to cut out and eliminate one who threatens to grow strong enough, maybe, to be a threat to him. And he doesn't even suspect exactly how close the Atreides are coming to that, right? Um, but with the emperor acting that way, systematically over time, the great houses will become weaker. It's what you do when you're in power, right? You weaken your potential opponents. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there's. But, but, but it's hard also to avoid the fact, and I think it's a really important moment here. Um, and as I said, we get that we get this in other places too, that um, the duke is cynical. Um, you know, and and you know he has anyway these flashes of cynicism and judging himself pretty harshly, right? One thing I would point out here, though, is that it shows that he has that sense of judgment, right? He doesn't actually buy his own propaganda. Um, it's there's a big difference between 
somebody who does cultivate an air of, of bravura and believe it, right? And one who cultivates it and then kind of despises himself a little bit or despises the necessity for cultivating it. Um, it's kind of, I think, the attitude that he shows here is a bit of a counterpoint to the Bene Gesserit Missionaria Protectiva concept, right? You know, let's... Um, uh, let's build this air, and you know, let's let's uh, lay the foundation for you to posture yourself in this particular way later on, without you know shame or self consciousness about that. All oh, it's just strategy, right? Um, the Duke is you know posturing similarly, but he seems to hate um, what he, you know the way that he that he that he postures. Um, Patrick Summers makes a great point. Ironically, the Duke may have the most realistic grid about himself, where so many others believe their own press. And Patrick, you're right. Listen, I mean, the voice, the, the tone that Paul strikes in this passage is important, right? You know, with his, like, our house hasn't degenerated, you govern well, men follow you willingly and love you. I mean, yeah, it's kind of true, but so is the Duke, right? Um, Paul is not speaking the truth. He's not. He's not. You know, responding with, with you know, the grid that he's talking anyway in that moment, is not more true, right? Um, you know, one would be inclined to ask Paul, "Hey, Paul, what's your own uh, instinct for rightness telling you about these things you're saying right now?" Right? Um, um, so, Patrick, I think that's a really great observation. Um, yeah. Good. Good. Um, Good. Stephen Schoenwolf says, on the one hand, we can say that degeneration of the houses uh, into a wheels-within-wheels situation makes things easier for the Bene Gesserit to control through their own means. And I have a mental comparison to shield fighting. Uh, but do the Bene Gesserit recognize that moving things towards their ends is hurting society as a whole? That's one of the fascinating things with this whole situation, right? We have so many different points of view. Um, and, and that's where I think you know I I I you know again I go back to that um, that metaphor that we got uh, in our first reading, um, which I think has been really interesting. You know, Patrick, you were just reminding us of it. That 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 um, that metaphor of the grids, right? Um, looking at the world through an entirely different framework, um, sort of just using a separate set of coordinates to map the same things, um, and as a result, things look different, things act differently, right? So, Stephen, do they even see the same thing? Um, you know, hurting society as a whole, well, according to whom, right? According to the great houses, yeah, the decline of the great house, the, de the, the degeneration of the great houses is a bad thing, right? It's a good thing for the emperor, Right? He seems pleased with it. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for the Bene Gesserits? Is it leading to the Cuisance Haderach? Well, sort of. Um, so, again, it's... Um, uh, it's, it's um, it depends on where you're standing, right? It depends on what grid you're looking through. Um, Mike Thurway has an excellent question. Can we define bravura? Good question. What would you say to that? Based on how the word is being used and thinking of the, the images that we get, I, I think the, 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 the central figure that has been attached to the concept of bravura is the old duke, right? Remember, we heard that word from the Reverend Mother at the beginning, right? She praised Duke Leto's father as a man who understood the value of bravura. And then we see him in his, you know, bullfighter's costume. Uh, and then we... Um, 
we get Duke Leto talking about this. Um, uh, so how do we how do we understand this? So now again, you know what we're talking about here is not just um, not just a dictionary definition, right? But how is the term being used? What are the connotations that are being given to that term within the context of this story? This, by the way, I think is a really important thing. You know, in, in fact, I would argue it's one of the most important things to do when you're reading a story is to really try to get inside the vocabulary of the story itself, to try to build a vocabulary from within the story, rather than appealing to outside terminology or outside frameworks, rather than looking at the story through an external grid. We all do to some extent, you can't avoid it, but, 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 but nevertheless, do, going as much as you can to dig into the story, find out, you know, try to understand these words not just from associations you have brought um, to the text for those words from outside, but how the word is used. This is a really interesting example because we do get it used several times um, in different, the related um, context. So let's see what some of your answers are about how we define uh, bravura. Brandon Lovesey suggests confidence. Certainly that seems to be involved. Brian Fatterini says bravery mixed with a dash of showmanship, strategy, and righteousness. I'm not sure about righteousness, but showmanship, definitely, right? Um, Tom Hillman says performance is essential, right? Think of the bullfighter leaning over the bull in a pass, right? It's not just enough um, bullfighting. I mean, I, I think that's really the metaphor that we get for bravura. That is the, the old duke in his matador's garb. That portrait of the old duke um, is really what I define. I mean, it's, it's what bravura means to me, I think, in this story. Um, and you think of all of the things associated with bullfighting. Bravery, certainly, right? Willing to put yourself in harm's way. But it's not just, you know, to be a good bullfighter is not just like, hey, I can kill a bull, right? It's showmanship. Right, um, I can kill a bull with style. Right, I can kill a bull and make it look good. Um, I can, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there is definitely putting on a show, as uh, as 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 Erica says. Um, yeah, Carolyn says it's not just a it, it's it's not just a gamecock puffing up his feathers, um, you know, to make himself look bitter. It's an it's an elan. It's, there's, a, there's a spirit to it. Consciously displaying an air of confidence, uh, says, uh, says Matthew. Uh, let's see. How is the CH in your last name? Herken, Herken Roder? Is it Herch or Herk? Tell me how to pronounce your last name. Um, I, I don't want to do it too awfully. Um, uh, yeah, good, good. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, Brandon points out, Brandon Lovesey points out that he uses the word bravura here immediately after talking about the political games. Um, I wonder if it's related to it. Okay. Herschenroder. Good. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it. Um, uh, that was a good definition. Um, Doug asks, would it be the opposite of how the Baron rules? Well, no, not the opposite exactly. Um, I mean, it's true that the the... Um, the bull doesn't show, you know, much showmanship exactly, but there's showmanship involved certainly in what the Baron is doing, right? He must not only defeat 
Duke Leto. He must be seen, he must destroy him, and he must be seen to be the one destroying him. It's not just enough to have him die, right? Um, it's not just about removing him. Um, uh, so, I mean, their tactics are certainly different. Um, the, um, the Baron never postures like a matador, but, um, but they're not opposite. I wouldn't call them opposites of each other at all, however. Um, yeah, Megan Vance uh, uh, says, taking risks boldly, letting the bowl get as close as possible, waiting until the last minute to dodge. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly some of the things that are involved with bravura, especially as, as the term applies to a matador. Um, good, good. Um, yeah, cool. Okay, um, we sh I, should, I should move on. We could talk about this passage for a long time, but let me move on to another Duke passage um, where, again, he's speaking um, in these, not the same kind of cynical tone, but in a similar kind of direction. To hold Arrakis, the Duke said, one is faced with decisions that may cost one his self-respect. He pointed out the window to the Atreides' green and black banner hanging limply from a staff at the edge of the landing field. That honorable banner could come to mean many evil things. Paul swallowed in a dry throat. His father's words carried futility, a sense of fatalism that left the boy with an empty feeling in his chest. The Duke took an anti-fatigue tablet from his pocket, gulped it dry. Power and fear, he said, the tools of statecraft. I must order new emphasis on guerrilla training for you. That film clip there, they call you Mahdi, Lizan al-Gaib. As a last resort, you might capitalize on that. Okay. Um, notice several things here. First, uh, notice that you know I was sort of contrasting the Duke's attitude towards the attitude of the Bene Gesserit uh, Missionaria Protectiva uh, before, you know, when he was he he you know suggested sort of playing a part or playing up to a role. Um, you know, he's, that he seems to suggest that there's something kind of despicable in that. Um, we see him addressing point-blank exactly the strategy of the Bene Gesserit, right? The whole purpose of this elaborate, multi-generational strategy of planting, the, you know, sort of uh, cynically planting these prophecies in particular planetary populations just to use as an escape valve um, to be manipulated by a future Bene Gesserit. Um, we see him bringing up that concept, right? He, he, he goes there, um, not consciously thinking of the Bene Gesserits, of course, but he goes there. Uh, and But notice he emphasized, you know, as a last resort, right? It's not, uh, that's not plan A for Duke Lido, right? Um, the other important thing, um, but yeah, it is, isn't it very prophetic? There are several things that he says here that are very prophetic, but the most important, the, the, there is a, um, uh, that statement, that honorable banner could come to mean many evil things, is a resonant statement. You know, you come across these sentences sometimes in great books where um, it's like this one sentence is sort of in reverb, right? You know, I mean, just echoes through the whole book um, even before even when reading the book for the first time that sentence sounds ominous in retrospect reading this book for you know the second or third or twentieth time 
even more so, right? Um, and notice what he's pointing out. Think back to what matters to him. Think about his house, which he fears is degenerating. Think about his ancestral dignity, right? That banner, that's the Atreides banner. That is who he is. That is the symbol of his house. But he recognizes, you know, it's only as good as the people who are currently maintaining its ancestral dignity, right? Um, we are faced with decisions that might that may cost one his self-respect. They're going to be put. They're going to be put in a hard place. They have been put in a hard place. What are they willing to do? Are they willing to? What kind of sacrifices are they willing to make? Are they willing to change their identity? Are they willing to become more like the Harkonnens in order to defeat them? Um, if so, that honorable banner could come to mean many evil things. We'll keep an eye on this. Um, uh, on this passage we'll come back to it I think at other at other points um, uh, Mike Thurway is pointing out that that proximity between the uh, dr Paul's dry throat and the Duke's gulping the anti-fatigue tablet dry um, see Mike I think that that's a really great observation we see Paul confronted with this idea right with this sort of specter of the Atreides banner coming to mean evil things, right? That's not only if Duke Leto makes wrong choices, but if Paul makes wrong choices, right? What, where is he going to lead House Atreides himself? And his throat feels dry, right? The Duke's so used to a dry throat that he can gulp down his tablets dry, or he doesn't even need water to swallow his pills anymore. He just can gulp it down in a dry throat. We see like the the Duke's used to having a dry throat, right, it seems. Um, but um, the other thing that I think is is really something that, I don't think it's the first time it's been mentioned, but I think the fact that it is mentioned in this context is, is, is really interesting. And I'm thinking of the Atreides house colors here, green and black. Um, it's a really interesting uh, pairing, isn't it? On the one hand, we have black, right? It's you know, the color of darkness, uh, you know, darkness and incipient evil, you know, is, is the black halfway across across the Atreides banner already? Um, and then green, right? And green is a really important color on Arrakis, naturally, right? It's the, in a sense, it's the color of the hope of Arrakis, to make Arrakis into a green world. They're bearing the color green uh, into a, uh, into a, 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 a planet, into a land that knows no green. Um, um, it's also associated, as, uh, as Kevin Morgan points out, with mourning uh, in this book. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, let's... Uh, I want to. I want to move forward. I want to make sure we get to. I want to talk about the the prophetic passages. I want to talk about uh, the uh, um, the the Lisan al Gaib stuff uh, with kinds. Um, so I want to make sure that we get there. Um, Kynes is grudging admission to himself at the end of the chapter when they go out into the desert in the in the Thopter. And Kynes, returning the stare, found himself troubled by a fact he had observed here. This duke was concerned more over the men than he was over the spice. He risked his own life and that of his son to save the men. 
He passed off the loss of a spice crawler with a gesture. The threat to men's lives had him in a rage. A leader such as that would command fanatic loyalty. He would be difficult to defeat. Against his own will and all previous judgments, Kynes admitted to himself, I like this duke. That statement is a big statement uh, in context. I like this duke, Kynes says. Against his own will and all previous judgments. We can see here this um, this uh, assessment of Duke Leto from Kynes is... Uh, one of the closest things that we get to a, a completely external assessment, this whole chapter works very interestingly in this way, right? We see from the very beginning of the chapter, we are seeing um, Duke Leto and Paul from an outside point of view, right? We're seeing them through somebody else's grid. Um, not the Harkonnen's grid, which is biased in its own way, not the Atreides grid, right? We're not, it's not, we're not hearing about him from, you know, from Gurney or through for Hawat or Jessica. We're hearing about him from an outside person and an outside person who is not objective, right, but who is biased against them um, already in a sense. Um, but um, uh, what we get, so from someone who is inclined towards hostility, to the, to the Atreides. And we see this assessment of the Duke, which the Duke has borne out, right? This is a fair assessment of the Duke. I think that this chapter, um, you know, this moment is the culmination of the, the, the part where we see Duke Leto really being, you know, the kind of Atreides hero that, that we're led to sort of assume him to be at the beginning. Right um, here, we see enacted the kinds of principles um, that really separate. You know, yes, they have the their propaganda circulating uh, around Arrakis, but there's substance there. Right, he really is different, fundamentally different uh, from the uh, from the from the Harkonnens, um, and um, you know, as a couple of you were were mentioning, it's not it's not just his his bravura is not just posture, right? He, he has that sardonic look at himself, right? He, he's hard on himself and believes that he feels like he's just posturing. But, you know, when push comes to shove, Duke Leto isn't posturing, right? In a crisis, he shows what he really cares about. Um, as Kynes points out, he not only risks his own life, he risks the life of himself and his heir for the sake of saving the lives of these 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 workers, these low-grade, uh, you know, spice crawlers um, uh, crew, right? And these aren't even important people to him. But um, he nevertheless does what he does and without, has, without posturing. Notice the contrast, right? The contrast between, there is that moment of posturing, right? Remember uh, Gurney Halleck's little PR move? Right when uh, Gurney instructs Kynes to tell everybody to you know that they, they they can split up the uh, uh, the the um, you know the spotting bonus among themselves right and he's doing it as a calculated PR move um, that serves as a really sharp contrast I think to what Duke Leto does entirely spontaneously not seeking credit to himself not thinking not with any evidence thinking about the, you know, again, it's not posturing. Um, it's spontaneous, and as Philip Lord reminds us, actions speak louder than words to the Fremen, um, and Kynes is impressed um, by the actions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, and and right, as Stephen was pointing out, in the contrast to the to to Gurney's move, um, he does it without hesitation. Remember that there's Gurney hesitates before he he does his calculated PR move, right? Is this a, you know is this a closed channel? Who's going to be on this frequency? And then he he explains, right? It was a good risk, right? The cost benefit analysis said do it, so I did it. Duke Lido isn't thinking about the cost-benefit analysis, right? If he were, he certainly wouldn't be doing it. He wouldn't be risking, you know, he believes that the thopter is going to hold up, and it does, but Gurney's not quite so sure, right? It's a risk. Um, you know, it was a good risk, says Gurney. Taking four extra crew, uh, you know, onto their uh, thopter is a, not a good risk under any circumstances, really. Um, that is, there's, there's very little way that that's going to pay off, um, except... It it impresses kinds and it really shows um, shows who who he is um, and how important that moment that, that that moment is and so the importance of commanding loyalty and the way that the duke commands loyalty is I think really important command fanatic loyalty the word fanatic is an important one it's not a that is not that is another one of those words which is going to come up more than once in this book. Um, and so I think it's an important one to notice here. A leader such as that would command fanatic loyalty. Um, uh, good, good. Yeah, James Stephen says it shows how much of a threat he could be to the emperor. Good, it does provide context, right? Sort of in, in small scale, right? We're told that you know Duke Leto is influential, you know, in the Lancerod, you know, among the other houses. You know why? In what sense? Um, um, yeah, but uh, uh, we don't really know. I mean, again, these are things we're just kind of told. Why we're led to understand this from the beginning. This is one of the first moments where we really see Duke Leto acting. In a way, I mean, again, he's showing it to Kynes, but he's also showing it to us. It really helps us to understand um, more exactly. Now, so Susan points out, so Paul was correct. Susan Minger says, yeah, Paul was correct when he identified his father as a good leader. Yeah, yeah. He, um, absolutely, he was. Um, maybe his instinct for rightness would have borne up his own statements. Maybe. Uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that's borne out. Um, but, but anyway, yeah, it, it certainly, it is. Herbert complicates Duke Leto, right? He doesn't leave him as just, uh, you know, this exalted figure. Um, he complicates him, but he doesn't tear him down, right? Um, in the process of showing us his internal division, um, telling us first about his, his internal division, right, from Jessica, and then showing his doubts and his own cynicism about himself and um, his recognition of the difficulties of their situation, him starting to make some poor decisions um, and going in the wrong direction, um, risking going in a disastrous direction with the Fremen, right, with Kynes in particular, pushing towards those imperial bases, which, um, remember in this chapter we learned, led Kynes to can almost, to, to right away t say, you know, tell Stilgar to decapitate uh, Duncan Idaho um, and, and, you know, send his head to the Duke um, for his, I mean, it's a big deal, right, and we saw... Um, how tempted Leto was to push even further, but yet we get this, right? We see why he commands fanatic loyalty. We see why people love him um, and really what makes him different from the Harkonnens. This idea of risking his own life and that of his son to save these men, these really lowly men, it doesn't get any further 
uh, from Baron Harkonnen than that. Um, uh, good, good. Um, Mike uh, Mike Thurway says uh, he shows the Duke's got uh, maybe one more fight left in him, but he's nearly out of gas. Um, yeah, Mike is uh, reminded of, uh, of 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 King Theoden here. In some ways, in some ways, um, hang on to that thought, Mike. I want to jump ahead here to the um, dinner party. Uh, a couple people were expressing um, sort of confusion, I guess, about uh, the dinner party. What's going on there? We'll come back to that in a minute. But I wanted to talk about this moment in particular um, and the several things going on here. This is in the middle of the Duke's long... I think this is probably the most protracted and uncomfortable toast ever ever <laughs> proposed. Uh, but anyway, as the guests waited, their attention torn between the dishes placed before them and the standing Duke, Leto said... In olden times, it was the duty of the host to entertain his guest with his own talents. Uh, you can imagine what Bilbo's guests would be thinking at this point. His knuckles turned white, so fiercely did he grip his water flagon. I cannot sing, but I give you the words of Gurney's song. Consider it another toast, a toast to all who've died, bringing us to this station. An uncomfortable stirring sounded around the table. Yeah, uh, if you ever want to really kill the mood in a room, bring up death in your toast. Jessica lowered her gaze, glanced at the people seated nearest her. There was the round-faced watershipper and his woman, the pale and austere guild bank representative. He seemed a whistle-faced scarecrow with his eyes fixed on Leto. The rugged and scar-faced Tuick, his blue-within-blue -blue eyes downcast. Review, friends, troops long past review, the duke intoned. All to fate, a weight of pains and dollars. Their spirits wear our silver collars. Review, friends, troops long past review. Each a dot of time without pretense or guile. With them passes the lure of fortune. Review, friends, troops long past review. When our time ends on its rictus smile, we'll pass the lure of fortune. The Duke allowed his voice to trail off on the last line, took a deep drink from his water flagon, slammed it back onto the table. Water slopped over the brim onto the linen. The others drank in embarrassed silence. Again, the Duke lifted his water flagon and this time emptied its remaining half onto the floor, knowing that the others around the table must do the same. Jessica was first to follow his example. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> Mike and Tom Hillman are both thinking the uh, where uh, uh, the uh, where and all the horse and the rider uh, 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 poem. Kind of, there are some similarities uh, between this and the poem that Aragorn recites. Um, um, okay, lot to talk about here. Um, the first thing that I would say is it's pretty clear that this is another one of those things which the Duke himself is calling death thoughts, right? That's another death thought. He keeps catching himself contemplating his own death, either directly or indirectly, right? Um, and uh, almost as if he has some kind of premonition that maybe he's not going to make it. Even the Duke himself has read the spoilers in this, right? Um, not even the Duke is surprised by his own death. Um, yeah, Tom points out he's going fey. Yes, yes, he is fey, in fact. Um, though that's not a word from this text, but uh, but yes, yes. 
Um, his poem. Let's talk about his poem. We've got the recurring refrain, right? Review, friends, troops, long past review. He explains, he contextualizes that with his introduction, right? Um, a toast to all who've died bringing us to this station. So it's a poem about, it's a song about um, dead soldiers, right? Dead warriors, those who gave their lives to enable this to happen. Um, the, 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 the references to troops and reviewing, right? Um, put this in a clear military context. Um, we are being invited, we are being addressed as friends three times and given a command to review. What are we reviewing? We're reviewing the troops that are long past review, the troops that can no longer stand to attention and be reviewed by their superior officer because they're dead now, right? They're long past review, but we're being asked to invite them anyway. So there's this, there's this spectral nature to this, right? This is the, this is sort of the, the retrospective review of the, and, and it's a really fascinating way to contextualize this, right? Again, it's, it's a toast to all who've died bringing us to this station. This is, so this is, he doesn't contextualize it within the poem as, let us celebrate the memory of those brave and noble people, right, who died self-sacrificially. That's not the tone that it strikes. It's a, it, it's a troop review, right? They're being called, they, the troops, you know, the dead ones, are being called to line up and be reviewed. And we, the listeners of the the listeners to the poem are being addressed directly, or the friends, right, who are being invited to review them, right? So we're standing, in a sense, almost in judgment on them, inspecting the troops, right, um, they, as they've been turned out for review. And what do we see? All to fate, a weight of pains and dollars. Their spirits wear our silver collars. Um, Nancy says that that line, their spirits wear our, our silver collars, is super creepy. It certainly is. Um, uh, all to fate, a weight of pains and dollars. I love the pains and dollars combination there. Um, <clears throat> because of the, the wordplay, at least what I suspect to be wordplay on dollars, right? Um, that pairing, pains and dollars, moves in a, 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 an unexpected direction, right? Um, I take the word dollars there to be a kind of, a, 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 to be a kind of pun, right? Um, that is a pun on the word which is much closer to pain, to pain that, is, that is dollars or, you know, or, or dolor. Um, uh, there is pains and, you know, sort of deeper suffering involved, but instead of using the word dolor, um, it's twisted, right? It's dollars. Um, this cold thing which points to the cruel reality, which, why did these people all die, right? Um, well, they, uh, they, they, fell, they fell to their fates, um, you know, their fate was a weight of pains and dollars. Um, uh, and then we get the the reference to their spirits wear our silver collars, right? So there's this there's this air of slavery to them, right? Again, we're not. It's not. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, it might be a little bit uncomfortable anyway to hear him get all tearful and you know talking about the soldiers that have died. Uh, maybe he could do that really well. Um, um, but 
what we get is something which is like the reverse of a maudlin retrospective on the dead soldiers, right? If anything, there's a, there's a, there's a harsh tone of bitterness here to this song. Um, pains and dollars <clears throat> wore them down, um, and even their spirits wear silver collars, right? There's 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 like slavery collars on them. At least slavery is how I is how I what I associate with the collars there. Um, good, Susan Minger was thinking the same thing there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, carrying on here. Um, with them passes the lure of fortune. Another very fascinatingly ambi ambiguous phrase there. Um, Okay, so with them passes the lure of fortune. The fact that when you're dead, you're no longer lured by fortune seems tolerably clear, right? But who shall no longer be lured by fortune? Them, right? They're no longer lured by fortune. They don't care about money anymore. Um, or us, right? With them passes the lure of fortune. It doesn't say that it's their lure, right? That they were the ones lured by fortune. Um, especially if they are the ones with the silver collars around their necks, um, it's our fortune, right? Again, the, the first person, the per first person plural um, that we get in this poem, the our silver collars, right? Um, uh, it's the first person plural which seems to be feeling the lure of fortune for which these people gave their lives, these soldiers gave their lives. The third time, review, friends, troops, long past review, when our time ends on its rictus smile, we will pass the lure of fortune. Um, uh, that image being, I think, the most striking and by far the most creepy <clears throat> image in the, oh good, and Tom was asking the same question, passes for whom? Very, very good, Tom. That's, of course, as you saw, that's just what I was thinking. Um, and Kevin Morgan is pointing out that it's also a veiled threat to the others at the table. Most uh, most have sold out for a bit of silver already. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, but again, that last that last image there. When when our time ends on its rictus smile. Um, now the rictus smile refers to the smile frozen on the face of a corpse. Um, uh, uh, Again, a very creepy thing. So when our time ends on its rictus smile. Um, and that image certainly seems to me to speak to um, uh, the shallowness of life, right? You know, if, say we succeed. Say we make ourselves happy, right? Say we live our whole lives in happiness. Where does that end? That happiness is merely frozen into a rictus smile at the end. When our time ends on its rictus smile, that is the natural fate of our time, right? Our time, our life is going to end in death, and we're going to be a corpse with a froze with a smile frozen on its face. Have a nice dinner, everybody. Cheers. Um, we'll pass the lure of fortune. So we get the repetition of that same idea here emphatically saying who's going to pass the lure of fortune. Um, maybe they're past the lure of fortune before, but again, it still seems like it kind of refers to us too. Now it's definitely referring to us, and, and I think pointing more clearly um, 
again, to the, the pointlessness of the things that we value in this life, the things that we... Remember, uh, you know, the whole question of we might have to make hard decisions, right? What was the phrase the Duke used at the beginning of the... To hold a racket when he's faced with decisions that may cost one his self-respect, right? Um, you know, what's it all for in the end? What do you gain? You know, what... Uh, is it worth it? Um, when we pass the lure of fortune... And here, fortune, I think, by the way, means much more than just money. Right, we've got the dollars reference and the silver stuff, so we, you know, we know that money is money's involved, right? But in the end, I think fortune is more than just cash here. Um, what does it mean to win, really? Um, this song is uh, there's 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 fadeaway. <laughs> Sorry, Tom Hillman is teasing me again, saying, "Are we going to talk about Boethius now?" No, 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 I'm resisting. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, uh, the sixth century treatise, is one of my favorite books. And usually, whenever there's any reference to fortune, I, I can be uh, depended upon uh, to go off and talk about Boethius for quite some time. But Tom, I'm going to be very good. I'm not, not going to bring it in because I see no reason uh, to believe that Boethius is an influence on Frank Herbert. So I'm not going to talk about it. Um, but uh, um, uh, but good, good. So um, uh, Stephen Schoenwolf is remembering um, uh, he says, I still see this, I, I see this song as a direct challenge to Leto's earlier toast of business's progress, fortune passes everywhere, and the fact that Choman, its profits and fortunes is the weather vane of their times. Um, yeah, yeah, the fact that everybody, um, I, I think that there is a kind of mockery of that, you know, the fact that everybody counts, you know, their status um, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, you know, their, their, you know, directorship holdings uh, in the Chome company. Um, that seems to be involved. You know, that seems to be something that uh, uh, this song seems to kind of take up, I think. Um, it's a deeply kind of nihilistic song, I think, um, as far as I can tell. Um, and certainly seems to reflect a certain amount of despair on Duke Leto's part. Um, then he does the thing with the water. Now, how do you guys understand the water thing? Because we have the two contradictory things that Duke Leto does, which seem obviously directly against each other. First, we have that Harkonnen custom of the washing your hands and then dropping the towel, sloshing the water on the floor and dropping the towels and then, um, you know, giving away the squeeze or selling the squeezings to beggars at the door. And Duke Leto is appalled by this custom and abolishes the custom. And... Uh, uh, and then comes in and has them all dump half their flagons of water on the floor. What the heck? Um, how do I understand that? Thoughts? Theories? How do you guys understand that? I have a theory, but um, um, but uh, but I want, I want to see what you guys think. Um, okay, good. Uh, uh, Brandon Lovesey suggests perhaps it's a sign of bravura, right? You know, that, that water is power on Arrakis. You know, one who can waste water, you know, has power. So it's it's a sign of bravura. I like that. Um, uh, it does, uh, it, you know, water is a symbol of power. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, 
Peter Ribsky says, uh, and I think Tom Hillman agrees with him, uh, he sees this as a toast to the fallen. The troops long past review deserve the precious water more than this assembled crowd. Peter, I like both of this, both sides of your comment there. But on the one hand, he is, as Tom Hillman has said, he's, he's, he's giving water to the dead, right? Um, he's not weeping here, but we see him giving water. You know, he's having drunk twice already, Right, he now recites this poem about the dead, and then pours out his his flagon. Right, um, and Peter, I like the other half of your comment too. That the troops long past review deserve the precious water more than this assembled crowd. Right, um, think about the way that the two things function. Right, um, think about what those two different water customs not necessarily assuming that this pouring out half the flagon on the ground is going to become a custom at every dinner party of the Atreides, but, but pairing those two things together, right, those two wastages of water, the one which he initiates, the other of which he abolishes. The meaning of them, you know, what they, what they stand for is obviously what matters to him, right? And of course I don't mean this in a symbolic sense like we were doing a symbolic interpretation of the portrait, you know, being sort of flogged towards a symbolic interpretation of the of the bull and the and the portrait last time. But just again thinking about what they mean, what they what they suggest, right? Um, as Kay Ben Abraham says, it's not the waste of water he cares about, it's the cruelty of the practice. Um, of using water as a weapon over others. Remember his comment when he hears about the old custom. He says, you know, that, that there's, there is no degradation um, that they leave undone to people, right? Their goal is to, um, it's all about asserting in everyone's mind the gap between those who have power and those who do not have power, right? I am going to reduce you to abject beggary. Right, uh, I am going to, to to destroy your spirit so that you are crawling at my feet, begging for drippings of dirty water from me. Right, that's the Harkonnen. And while where, while at the same time encouraging th those who do have power, right, those who are guests at the party, um, to slop the water, right, um, to treat the water and the people who would beg it with disdain, right. Um, so that is obviously what offends the Duke. What he does with the flagon is very different, right? Indeed, um, it is, uh, um, you know, Peter Ribsky says it's a sign of contempt for the profiteers assembled at the table. Yeah, exactly. Remember, um, right in the paragraph right after where, where I stopped here, because I ran out of space, um, uh, we get the, the, the uncertainty, right? Espe Jessica is noting especially the women don't know what to do, and they one of them drops her flagon on the floor because she, she you know, like the, the whole idea of taking potable water, which you could drink, different from the drippings from the hand washing, right? Potable water, which would be, and then just dumping it out on the floor. Um, uh, there is, I think, uh, contempt there, right? Um, he's, he's sort of imp uh, uh, suggesting, again, symbolically, he's taking water out of their mouths. Right again, it's almost the opposite of the water custom of the Harkonnens. Right, um, it flattens the distinctions. Right, I'm going to deprive you of your water. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Uh, Liz Bateman asks a great question. Is it significant that the Duke toasts with water instead of wine? It's appropriate for Arrakis, but it seems odd to me to do this at a formal dinner when there are other options available. Yeah, they're going to be... They have wine, right? They're going to be drinking wine. Um, it does seem to be important. Uh, you know, is that presumably an Arakeen custom? Did he always do that? Did they used to toast with water on Caledon? That seems a little hard to imagine that they would have done that. Um, yeah, water is a sign of wealth. It is more impressive, as you know, uh, Kevin, as you say. Um, but it's, but the, the thing that's interesting to me is that there's no real attention drawn to that. That is, we're told about the, you know, that several times our attention is drawn to how strange the new customs of Arrakis seem to them, how hard it is for the Atreides to get used to thinking about water in these new ways, right? Um, um, and maybe, you know, maybe... Um, uh, I mean, yeah, it does have more value than wine, but again, that's an Arakeen custom. That would be that would be that would be uh, an, it's an Arakeen way of looking at things. Um, I don't know what to conclude about it, right? Um, presumably, it sounds like it is something which is just a custom that they began on Arrakis, or that they continue from Arrakis to toast with the water, um, but. Um, but we're not told that explicitly. Um, uh, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, maybe only, like, a tiny little bit interesting. But, um, but still kind of interesting. Either it's a sign of their, that they're starting to adapt more, right? They're starting to adapt the Arakeen customs more seamlessly than they did originally. Um, or if not, it tells us something interesting about them. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one last, uh, uh, indulge me in one last Duke Leto passage and then we'll move on to prophecies. Uh, Mike, as you can see from my subtitle here, you weren't the only one who was thinking about Theoden uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, Duke Leto. Of course, I already gave that away, right, when talking when I uh, used that uh, Saruman quotation as in my subtitle for the de degeneration of the house. Um, you, sorry, I meant to explain that, just because it probably looked a little bit cryptic, the uh, a thatched barn where brigands drink in the reek uh, and their brats roll on the floor among the dogs is uh, how uh, Saruman characterizes the degeneration of the house of Aeorl. Um, uh, so, sorry, that's, I couldn't resist, not that I tried too hard, uh, that, uh, that, that, that parallel. And here's another one. A pre-dawn hush had come over the desert basin. He looked up. Uh, by the way, let me pause and just say, this is one of those passages which uh, are just wonderful if you look at them closely, but it's so easy not to look at them closely as you read. Um, you know, you go through and you find passages which are sort of obviously important, you know, moments of, of really crucial decisions, um, uh, climactic events, um, uh, you know, moments which bear a, a huge significance, you know, it's sort of a turning point in somebody's character. Um, and... Uh, but then there's passages like this, which I often find really, really meaningful when, uh, you know, an author, when a story is really conveying something to us, um, you know, much more sort of viscerally than we get in other places. A pre-dawn hush had come over the desert basin. He looked up. 
Straight overhead, the stars were, were a sequin shawl flung over blue-black. Low on the southern horizon, the night's second moon peered through a thin dust haze, an unbelieving moon that looked at him with a cynical light. As the duke watched, the moon dipped beneath the shield-wall cliffs, frosting them, and in the sudden intensity of darkness, he experienced chill. He shivered. Anger shot through him. The Harkonnens have hindered and hounded and hunted me for the last time, he thought. They are dung heaps with village provost mines. Here I make my stand, and he thought with a touch of sadness. I must rule with eye and claw as the hawk among lesser birds. Unconsciously, his hand brushed the hawk emblem on his tunic. Okay, let's start. Just the first half of that first, the darkness half um, of, uh, of this, because we have the... Um, uh, the setting of the moon by K. Ben Abraham says that they are dung heaps with village provost mines. Uh, K. says that is a positively Shakespearean insult. You're absolutely right, K. Uh, uh, that's uh, that's 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 fantastic. Um, uh, anyway, um, okay. So notice the sort of the symbolism here, right? Okay, so we've got the stars, so the the, uh, the, the moon the moon is going down, right? Um, darkness comes over the world and he sees the stars are a sequin shawl flung over blue-black, right? We get the, 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 the metaphor of kind of superficial glamour, right? With the sequins, right? Um, the stars don't, I mean, it's beautiful, but they don't sound all that impressive, right? Um, uh, you know, again, there's, they're not like jewels, they're like sequins, right? Um, and then, and they're accompanied then by an unbelieving moon that looked at him with a cynical light. And we think of the cynicism, um, the cynicism of his own character, right? This, the, the cynicism that he himself has been, has been uh, betraying, and this, you know, this moon is looking at him. Uh, with a, this unbelieving moon is looking at him with a cynical light. The uh, um, uh, the the adjective unbelieving applied to the noun moon I find really fascinating. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, carrying on, then darkness falls, right? Um, and it's when darkness falls. Uh, you know, the moon dips below the shield wall cliffs. There's, they are frosted, right? So there's there's frost and cold, and then a sudden intensity of darkness, and he is chilled, right? Um, it's like that again. Doesn't that sound like a glimpse into Duke Leto's world, right? Here's like the the unbelieving, cynical moon, falling, dipping down below the sh behind the shield wall. Um, and then he experiences a chill and shivers in the darkness that comes. And in that darkness, he's full of anger, right? Anger against the Harkonnens. Um, desire, this, this furious desire to stand up against them. He must rule with eye and claw. Ironic that he's in complete darkness, right? He can't see anything. Mr. I'm going to rule with eye and claw. Turns out only to have claw and not eye uh, to... Um, 
uh, to, 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 to deal with, right? Uh, Nancy Fosberg likes the uh, cynical moon. Uh, she says, you know, the moon seems to be saying, I'm not impressed with any of these guys. Uh, the moon's seen a lot of them come and go. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, Nancy says, the hawk among lesser birds once again seems to set them apart as different and superior to those around them. Yes, we see this resolution. This is a dark resolution, right? It's a resolution that comes from anger and that is made in darkness. Here I make my stand. I can't do, you know, I have no choice. I, this, this, I, I must do this to survive. I must become a hawk. Oh, wait, I am a hawk already. The hawk is the emblem of my house. Right, my green and black house. Um, then, to the east, the night grew a faggot of luminous gray, then seashell opalescence that dimmed the stars. There came the long, bell-tolling movement of dawn, striking across a broken horizon. It was a scene of such beauty it caught all his attention. Some things beggar likeness, he thought. He had never imagined anything here could be as beautiful as that shattered red horizon and the purple and ochre cliffs. Beyond the landing field, where the night's faint dew had touched life into the hurried seeds of Arrakis, he saw great puddles of red blooms, and, running through them, an articulate tread of violet, like giant footsteps. It's a beautiful morning, sire, the guard said. Yes, it is. The dude, the, the dude, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the Duke, uh, channeling my six-year-old song here, The Dude. The Duke nodded, thinking, perhaps this planet could grow on one. Perhaps it could be could become a good home for my son. Okay. Um, <laughs> the Duke abides, <laughs> says Kevin Morgan. Well played, sir, well played. Um, uh, yeah, good, good. Um, <clears throat> look at the imagery there when the light comes up. To the east, the night grew a faggot of luminous gray, then seashell opalescence that dimmed the stars. Um, it's like a fire rising, right, at first. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a, a, a faggot, like a piece of firewood, right? So it's like, it first is this small, sort of homey glow, right, which then becomes you know, this seashell opalescence, right, that dimmed the stars, um, followed by the long bell-tolling movement of dawn striking across a broken horizon. Um, the way that he uses this, this, this aural, you know, A-U-R, you know, this, this aural image for the light that he sees, right, comparing the coming of the sunrise to the tolling of a bell, um, is a brilliant, brilliant um, uh, move, I think, there. Um, you know, get what, what starts off as a sort of a homey fire um, becomes radiant and then explodes, right? Um, explodes like a bell tolling across a broken horizon as if the horizon itself has been shattered by the sun as it comes up. And what does he see in the light of the new sun? puddles of red blooms in the valley, right? Looking, of course, you know, so we see the foreshadowing of the coming battle, right? Fire, explosion, pools of blood lying, pools like blood lying in the valley, um, being harvested, 
right? By the people of Arrakis, right? Out with their dew collectors. Um, Tom asks, is the sunrise tolling for Leto? Yeah, he might be the one for whom this sunrise tolls, uh, arguably. Um, uh, yeah, Susan says it reminds her of, of a funeral bell. Yes, exactly. Um, but notice, notice what else we get, right? Um, it's not just a, a, a red dawn. Um, he gets a red dawn. I'm not sure he's going to get a golden sunset, but he gets a red dawn, right? Um, uh, what else? Uh, what else do we see? Right? Yes, red fell the dew, Tom. Exactly, exactly. You're all over it. <laughs> it's amazing how well the Theoden thing works here, isn't it? Um, notice, notice. The, the flowers, again. Beyond the landing field, where the knights, the landing field, you know, where they landed on Arrakis, um, the knights' faint dew had touched to life the hurried seeds of Arrakis. He saw great puddles of red blooms and, running through them, an articulate tread of violet, like giant footsteps. In the middle of this field of blood, you know, covered with pools as of blood, not literally, right? Pools as of blood, he sees an articulate tread, right? Distinct treads of big, huge, purple footsteps, like giant's footsteps. Um, which I can't help, I can't help but be reminded of, you know, be put in mind of Paul's own rise to power, right? Um, yeah, royal purple, right? Imperial purple, indeed. Um, uh, as both Philip and Noel and uh, Noel point out, um, yeah, yeah, the footsteps of some gigantic imperial being treading through the pools of blood that are in the valley of Arakeen in the dawn. <clears throat> uh, and he's struck by the beauty of it, right? And thinks of Paul. Hmm. Perhaps it could become a good home for my son. And the... Um, yeah, Doug points out how his inner dialogue echoes the Reverend Mother for the Father nothing. Uh, yes, yes. And... Um, but the, oh, the irony of that last statement, perhaps it could be a good home for my son. Remind yourself of that line occasionally through the rest of the book. Um, as Paul continues in, in the rest of his tumultuous adjustment to Arrakis and the many changes in Paul's fortunes and in Paul's career, um, and think about this idea of perhaps Arrakis could become a good home for my son. Um, uh, that is another sentence that really just reverberates, um, but in what I think is often a sort of a painfully ironic way throughout the story. Okay, okay. Um, I'm really going to move on. <laughs> Having spent the better part of two classes on Duke Leto, we should move on. But wait, first, more poetry. Because I can. Um, I've skipped over a couple poems already concerning which shame on me. Um, one thing I would say in my defense, um, I have to admit I don't like Frank Herbert's poetry as much as I like uh, Tolkien's poetry, primarily because uh, uh, Herbert does mostly free verse, 
which I I know that I will sound like a philistine for saying this, uh, you know, at this day and age. But I find free verse. Uh, uh, it's only half poetry, um, uh, but um, as I, I, the thing that Robert Frost said, which, with which I agree most strongly, uh, that writing poetry without meter is like playing tennis without a net. Um, anyway, uh, um, <laughs> Brian Federini calls free verse the laziest and least interesting English poetry. Um, well, that's strong language there, Brian, but uh, I, and I'm not saying that I think that all free verse is the product of laziness, um, but I find it much less interesting because it strips poetry of one of the things that I find so fascinating. Um, when I'm looking at really good poetry that has meter and, um, and, and ideally rhyme as well, rhyme and meter give a poem two other dimensions that a poem without those things just doesn't have. Um, and it give, those are tools or instruments that a poet can use um, to bring, to sort of convey meaning to us in ways just, you know, that are nonverbal. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, it's not that there can't be good poetry written in free verse. I just can't help but think that if the poets who wrote in free verse um, would, you know, really good free verse poems, uh, if those poets who wrote them would apply themselves to rhyme and meter, they could do even more, and it would be even more awesome. That's all. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's less awesome than really good poem written with rhyme and meter. I'm sorry. I, I, that's, it's my personal opinion. You can disagree with me if you want. But anyhow, so I'm not quite as infatuated with her, with uh, Herbert's poetry. But this one I thought was kind of interesting. Um, this is uh, this is Halleck, of course, in the Thopter as they're riding out towards the uh, towards the uh, the spice um, factory, and he asks Paul what Paul would like to hear, and Paul tells him to sing whatever he wants. And so he picks up a song which is relevant to the circumstances, right? As Gurney is so good at coming up with songs and quotations which seem to fit Pat to the circumstances. And uh, here is the song that he chooses. Our fathers ate manna in the desert, in the burning places where whirlwinds came. Lord, save us from that horrible land. Save us, oh, save us from the dry and thirsty land. Um, and I think that this is... Um, I, I, I don't want to go. I don't want. I don't, don't want to talk about this for too long. Um, but I thought that this was interesting in light of what it reveals about Gurney's own thinking, especially since Gurney's thinking seems to be, especially Gurney's poetry seems to be kind of an expression of the Atreides' point of view uh, to some extent. Anyway, um, he seems to be a kind of a representative there, um, and um, so. Given that again, this is this is the song that comes to his mind when he's flying through here. Notice what we have. Of course, it's a desert poem, and that makes it relevant. Um, but look at how um, look at how it's relevant, right? Look at look at the way. So we have two different relationships here. Two different two different sides of this. Our fathers ate manna in the desert, in the burning places where whirlwinds came. Uh, Lord, save us from that horrible lamb. So how are the is the speaker of this poem, um, speakers, I mean, it's, it's plural, our fathers, right? Um, um, how is the speaker of this poem appealing 
to God. What 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 is this poem ask? What is the speaker asking of God? It refers back to a time when God provided for the people, preserved them in the desert by providing manna to them, right? Fed them, sustained them in the desert where there was no other um, source of food, in the burning places where whirlwinds came. But that's not what's being requested, right? There's a shift from that in the first two lines. And in the second portion of this, we get simply the appeal, Lord, save us from that horrible land. Not save us in that horrible land, right? Not preserve us within that horrible land, which is what's suggested by the opening image, the manna in the desert image, um, which again suggests a dependency upon God uh, for providing for them and bringing them through the desert, but rather just save us from that horrible land. Save us, oh, save us from the dry and thirsty land. We want nothing to do with the dry and thirsty land, right? Um, uh, we, want, uh, we want out or to be kept out of it. Neither one of these things. There's, so I, there's, there's a kind of tension, I think, um, not only between those two things, but also between both of those things and the third thing which is the actual Atreides plan, the actual Atreides approach to Arrakis. They have sought out the desert, right? Um, they have been, you know, again, his song is certainly, you know, applicable. Uh, they have, in a sense, been sort of cast into the desert, um, have had to escape into the desert. They've left the promise, you know, they've, they've, they've left the, the rich and fertile land, right? Uh, like the Israelites leaving Egypt uh, and going out into the wilderness. Again, the manna thing there, the refer, uh, reference to the Exodus um, in, uh, in, in the first few lines. Um, and there are some parallels there, right? It, it, it evokes certain parallels with the Atreides situation. But remember, the heart of the Atreides plan, the reason they have come to Arrakis is not because they have been cast there. It is because they desire to be there, because they believe, because the Duke believes that the only hope for Paul and for the future of his house lies in the Fremen and the desert. And think back to the discussions about this, the Sardaukar and Seleucus Secundus and, uh, and why the Fremen are as tough as they are. Um, there's no reference here to, uh, to strengthen us through the desert, right? Um, uh, but that's central to one of the things, one of, you know, the, there's a kind of paradox to Arrakis, right? It is a horrible, horrible place. It is certainly a dry and thirsty land from which you would cry out to be saved, and yet it is also the instrument through which salvation comes to House Atreides. Um, and I find it interesting that Gurney's song seems totally clueless about this. That is, the attitude towards the desert that he is depicting in this song um, is a simple one and seems to me to um, suggest, I don't think it necessarily suggests that Gurney himself is totally clueless, but the way in which many of his desert quotations kind of fit superficially but don't really fully fit, right? Um, there's, a, there's, there's, there's a way in which, um, again, Gurney as sort of spokesperson for the Atreides point of view doesn't really, doesn't really doesn't really fit itself into yet the actual picture of Arrakis. Um, anyway, 
more we could talk about there, but I, I, I wanted to uh, just mention it. One other thing I want to mention quickly before I get to prophecy, which I'm totally going to do because we've got like plenty of time. Um, I only want to talk, in fact, I'm not even going to read this whole passage uh, out because we are running short on time. Um, but I just want to mention it, the, um, the dinner party stuff. Um, I love the delicate, inter the delicate interplay of interpretation and reinterpretation of coded language and hand signal and body language and um, uh, it's one of the things that I found and have found since the first time I read this book so delightful. Um, delightful in the, in the way that, that, uh, that riddles are delightful. Right, um, you read these passages, and you, as a reader, are openly challenged. Right? Can you do you see what's going on here? Right? We're given hints. Right? We're even walked along certain things, and at least one level of things we're given insight into. Right? The uh, the point of view keeps popping in and out of people's heads, so that we we get some insight, so that we know more than people, but we certainly don't know everything. And many of the things that are brought in, many of the questions that are asked, what's she doing? Right? She's not an empty-headed female, right? What's her game? We don't know what her game is, right? Um, what is the water seller's plan, right? Um, he's one who bears watching. When you watch him, what do you see, right? Um, there are games within games and, and, and strategies within strategies, and we never actually get the full answer key, right? The way in which, one really sort of simple reason why I wanted to draw attention to this passage and to the dinner party scene, and I didn't want to not mention, we're not going to go through the dinner party scene in detail because I want to talk about prophecy, but, um, um, but I did at least want to just recognize this. There are many places where I've talked about before, one of the things that I think is so powerful about Dune is the way in which we are given again and again the impression of just barely scratching the surface, right? That there is so much going on that we don't really know. There's so much here than what we're being told. And this is a really simple um, example of, uh, of this kind of thing happening, right? Of the fact that we as readers are only getting a really, really simple version here. You know that there is so much, and 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 the more you read it, the more times that you read it, the more things you begin to see. But we never really know all of the answers here. Um, uh, I, I this this passage, I I, I love this passage. Um, so much happens here, right? I mean, there the if 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 you were to try to explain, um, you know, the full implications of all of the words and gestures and things that happen in this path, it would take a really long time, right? The way that he you know, crams in all of the this this insight and these glimpses that were given uh, is really uh, is really is really fascinating. I think. Um, good, Amber Nelson says, with as much as Herbert tells us, you know, all the spoilers, uh, we still only see through the glass darkly. I, I think that's 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 absolutely right. Um, and it, and isn't that a fascinating kind of paradox, right? Again, that paradox seems to be sort of at the heart, um, in one sense, I think, of the whole narrative approach of this book. I'm not going to hide anything, right? I'm not going to hold back anything and surprise you with it. Um, I'm going to give you heavy hint after heavy hint after heavier hint. You'll know what's going on, and yet, will you be able to figure out what's going on, right? Will you really be able to see? As our vision as readers is being sort of brought alongside Paul's. 
We'll talk about that more next time, I hope. Be all to talk about next time. Uh, we'll see how we do. But anyway, let's get back to prophecy. I want to look at a series of passages, four passages to be precise, um, of the unfolding of the... Uh, uh, of the prophecies of uh, of of the Mahdi, the Fremen prophecies, about which they are wondering if Paul is the fulfillment of. This is Kinds, of course, the beginning of the Kinds chapter. His first encounter with the people he had been ordered to betray left Dr. Kinds shaken. He prided himself on being a scientist, to whom legends were merely interesting clues pointing toward cultural roots. Yet the boy fitted the ancient prophecy so precisely, he had the questing eyes and the air of reserved candor. Of course, the prophecy left certain latitude as to whether the mother goddess would bring the Messiah with her or produce him on the scene. Still, there was this odd correspondence between prediction and persons. Now, we've already got context of this, right? All of this stuff comes in after we've had the scene with Jessica and the Shadat Mapes. So we know about the Missionaria Protectiva. We know what Jessica knows, or at least we don't know everything that Jessica knows, but we know she's already told us about um, the sham, right? That this, all these legends are, have been planted there. She, she's able to diagnose it right away, and listening to Mapes talk, she's like, oh, oh, right, oh, yeah, prophecy number 14. Okay, right, I know the script. Right? She knows the script. This is all planted stuff. Cynically planted things which the Bene Gesserit don't believe, but which they've planted there only so, to, so as to allow these people to be able to be manipulated later on. And we can see evidence of that, right? Uh, you know, the certain latitude as to whether the mother goddess would bring, of course, there's a mother goddess, right? Because Bene Gesserit, right? Um, would bring, you know, the, you know, the future Bene Gesserit, that's the role she's going to have to play you know, when she recognized it as prophecy number 14 or whatever, um, would bring the Messiah with her or produce him on the scene. Well, that covers your bases, right? So if you're the Bene Gesserit in question, you're golden, right? You've got a kid, hey, Messiah, right? You don't have a kid, no problem. Get a Messiah, right? You know, just get, get yourself pregnant and make a Messiah, and then you're good, right? So, hey, so we can see the flexibility of it for Bene Gesserit purposes. Again, this seems all very straightforward. And then, and the phrases, right? He had the questing eyes and the air of reserved candor. Okay, that sounds pretty vague, right? I mean, like, those, that seems pretty safe. I mean, presumably, the quotes that he's giving are quotes from these prophecies, these prophecies that have been embedded by the Bene Gesserits, right? Um, so he's got, he, will, he will have questing eyes. Well, that's pretty easy, right? If you're looking for, you know, if you're looking at somebody and being like, hmm, would you call his eyes questing? What do you think? Does he have questing eyes? I think his eyes are a little bit questing. Don't you think so? I mean, come on, man, right? Okay, so it's, it's, it, it kind of sounds like a sham, right? Um, and notice the position that we see Kynes in, right? He, is just, he himself is cynical, right? Or at least he believes himself to be cynical, right? He, he is not just sucked in by these prophetic cues. He's not as cynical as Jessica in the sense that he doesn't know about why these things have been embedded here, right? He's not... Uh, He's not in the know, but he's resistant, right? He doesn't. He does not have implicit faith in these things. Yet he says, he's amazed at how perfectly, how precisely the boy fits the ancient prophecy. But his first two examples, pretty weak, right? So where exactly is Kynes? Why is he so convinced? Why is Mister like I am a dispassionate scientist so convinced? Um, if the prophecy can't do any better than that, right? Well, let's keep going. Okay, number two. 
We are indebted to you, Dr. Kynes, Leto said. These suits and the consideration for our welfare will be well remembered. Sorry, will be remembered. On impulse, Paul called to mind a quotation from the O.C. Bible, said, The gift is the blessing of the giver. The words rang out over loud in the still air. The Fremen escort Kynes had left in the shade of the administration building leaped up from their squatting repose, muttering in open agitation. One cried out, Lizan al-Gaib! Kynes whirled, gave a curt chopping signal with a hand, waved the guard away. They fell back, grumbling among themselves, trailed away around the building. Most interesting, Leto said. Kynes passed a hard glare over the, Paul, over the Duke and Paul, said, Most of the desert natives here are a superstitious lot. Pay no attention to them. They mean no harm. But, the thought, but he thought of the words of the legend. They will greet you with holy words, and your gifts will be a blessing. Okay. Again, the actual prophecy itself... So Paul quotes this thing. Paul's quotation gets a really strong reaction, right? Um, uh, which seems puzzling at first. But again, the the words of the legend alone. I mean, it's still pretty generic, right? I mean, it, this sounds like something that you know. It, it's easy to fit this in with the Bene Gesserit sham, right? They will greet you with holy words, and your gifts will be a blessing. Remember, the whole point of this is just to allow the future Bene Gesserit to play up to it, right? Um, so let's. Embed some prophecies that will be easy to be fulfilled, right? Which, which a clever Bene Gesserit in the future, which presumably you know they're all clever, um, will uh, will be able to manipulate people into believing that these prophecies have been fulfilled and it's a miracle, right? Okay, fine. Um, they will greet you with holy words. Well, again, if the if the Bene Gesserits know the script, right? You know, of course, Bene Gesserit, uh, you know, Jessica would be likely to quote holy words because she's she knows that that's probably going to be there, right? So, okay, so no problem, you know. So that gives the future Bene Gesserit, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that she should know to do in order to fulfill the prophecy. But it's generic, so it doesn't matter what you quote, right? It just quote the holy words, and uh, and that'll be impressive. Um, and your gifts will be a blessing. Probably they're going to say thank you at some point. So again, you, again, it seems like a small thing, easy to blow out of proportion. Again, an easily manipulable prophecy, right? Bene Gesserit Shem. But it is kind of striking, though, isn't it? The way that the prophecy itself is very unimpressive, but the fulfillment of the prophecy is actually pretty striking, isn't it? It takes these two things. They will greet you with the holy with holy words, and your gifts will be a blessing. Which again, separately, sound like two gen, two pretty easy to come by fulfillments grouped together, right? But Paul does you know he quotes from the OC Bible. He quotes holy words at them. He doesn't know the script, right? He doesn't know he's supposed to do that. He just does it on impulse, right? Some impulse, which Paul doesn't understand, on impulse, he quotes from the O.C. Bible, probably reflecting more than... Ref this is not how Jessica operates. Who operates this way? He's not, imi he's not imitating Jessica. He's not responding through his Bene Gesserit training in doing this. What's he doing? He's <laughs> What's he doing? He's, he's imitating Gurney. Right? This is what Gurney does all the time. Gurney always has a quote from the O.C. Bible that is opposite to any circumstance. Right? So he follows not 
the Bene, so in other words, he's doing like Gurney. He's not following the following the Bene Gesserit uh, uh, training here, right? He quotes from the Odyssey Bible, like Gurney might. The gift is the blessing of the giver. But the holy words that he uses, without knowing that he's supposed to use them, exactly echo the other half of that, and your gifts will be a blessing. So again, it's what what are two separated, which which detached from each other, are two really generic, easy to fulfill prophecies combined together. He shall greet you with holy words, which state that your gifts are a blessing. It becomes a pretty darn specific prophecy, right? Which has just been pretty spectacularly fulfilled. Um, it's pretty striking, right? Um, and yes, yes, Kevin, Yue gives Paul the Bible, that's how we're introduced to it at first, but this quoting of it, is, Gurney does that all the time. Um, so I, mean, I don't really associate, associate that with Yue exactly. Though it is an interesting thing, right? This, the fact that Yue, uh, the traitor, gives him the Bible um, before they go. So you know, in a sense, you can see Yue connected there. But anyway, my point is simply, he's not shamming, right? He's not doing the last resort thing and playing up to the Mahdi business. Um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, so the second piece becomes more interesting. Like that moment with the shit out mapes where Jessica is shamming and she's playing up, but then the, there's that, that crucial moment. The answer to the pivotal question came out by accident. She wasn't going to give the right answer. Um, but by accident, she said the right thing, right? Um, almost as if it were, and that's how you would expect a prophecy actually to be fulfilled if it were a real prophecy. Um, uh, anyway, number three. Paul stood passively as Kynes inspected the suit. It had been an odd sensation putting on the crinkling, slick-surfaced garment. In his four-consciousness, he had been the abs In his four-consciousness had been, the, by which I understand to be like his waking consciousness, like the the front of his brain, um, had been the absolute knowledge that he had never before worn a still suit. Yet, each motion of adjusting the adhesion tabs under Gurney's inexpert guidance had seemed natural, instinctive. When he had tightened the chest to gain maximum pumping action from the motion of breathing, he had known what he did and why. Remember, his dad needs it explained to him. When he had fitted the neck and forehead tabs tightly, he had known it was to prevent friction blisters. Kine straightened, stepped back with a puzzled expression. You've worn a still suit before, he asked. This is the first time. Then someone adjusted it for you? No. Your desert boots are fitted slip fashion at the ankles. Who told you to do that? It seemed the right way. That it most certainly is. And Kynes rubbed his cheek, thinking of the legend, He shall know your ways as though born to them. Um... Again, the legend itself is simple and something that could be faked, right? Uh, you know, if we're if we're the future Bene Gesserit and we know this thing, we would know how to play up to that. He shall know your ways as though born to them. But it's not faked. Not only is Paul not faking it. Not only does Paul not know about that prophecy and is and is, and is playing up to it. Not only is, but Paul himself is struck by this, right? Why do I just seem to know? Where did this knowledge come from? Um, it's natural. 
instinctive. He shall know your ways as though born to him. That is a precise description of Paul here. He does, in fact, know their ways as if he was born to them. It is natural, instinctive for him to do these things. Um, uh, it's as if his description, the, the distinction between his foreconsciousness, right? He knows for a fact he has never worn a still suit before, but he knows not only how to do it, but why. Right? He understands how a still suit works. He has knowledge that he doesn't have any memory of ever getting before. Knowledge which is somehow just in him. It's as if he has memories from the future. Okay. Does that, wait, does that disprove the prophecy? No. No, it doesn't disprove the prophecy. Um, it sounds more and more Again, and I love the way that it started off sounding like, you know, come on, man, you know, uh, that's a pretty chintzy, you know, it's a pretty weak fulfillment of prophecy. This, and this is getting really more and more specific and more and more powerful. It really begins to sound like maybe he is the one. Maybe he is the one that was prophesied to come. Maybe these prophecies that the Bene Gesserits have planted are legit. Maybe that cynical grid in which this is all a sham is not in fact the right uh, the right or only way to look at these things and I think that we as readers are being invited in the way that we come alongside kinds here and are being given the flashes of the prophecy as they're being fulfilled right um, I think that we are being prompted uh, to uh, um, to to see this fulfillment, to, to recognize um, this, um, um, there's something to this, perhaps. It's not just a fake. It's not just an act. It is not just bravura. Um, it is not just a sham. It's also not just an accident, right? Like Jessica's accident, right? he has knowledge. Why did he, he didn't just happen to uh, put on his still suit the right way and therefore by chance fulfill the prophecy. That would be pretty striking by itself, right? But that's not what happened. As he was doing it, he somehow knew what he did not know. And he was aware of the fact that he knew what he did not know. He understood a still suit implicitly, though he had never been told about it before. Um, so our, again, our attention is drawn to the fact um, uh, to the fact that there's he's even more conscious of things going on um, in his own mind. Kay is quoting he can go many places in his body's memory, quoting from the Reverend Mother's description of the Quisatz Haderach and uh, the Truth Trance. Um, yes, yes. Um, now, Doug points out that he's impressed the exact right person to ensure their protection later on. Indeed, that's the beautiful other side of this, right? Um, if you were going to put on a sham, 
this would be the way to do it, right? And the person to whom, just as remember, this is the same chapter we were looking at where, you know, with Kind's assessment of the Duke, right? If the Duke were to put on a show of bravura in front of somebody to impress him, it would be Kind's, right? But when he does impress Kind's in the Thopter, it's not because of bravura. It's because of his actual um, uh, spontaneous, uh, uh, um, spontaneous actions, right? It's not bravura, it's true. Um, one more, and then I'll let you go. My lord the duke and I have other plans for our conservatory, Jessica said. This is at the dinner party, of course. She smiled at Leto. We intend to keep it, certainly, but only to hold it in trust for the people of Arrakis. It is our dream that someday the climate of Arrakis may be changed sufficiently to grow such plants anywhere in the open. Bless her, Leto thought. Let our water shipper chew on that. So here's here's Leto thinking, you know, just like, oh, I was a cunning riposte, right? She really outmaneuvered him there. Your interest in water and weather control is obvious, the Duke said. I'd advise you to diversify your holdings. One day water will not be a precious commodity on Arrakis. Now we know that the Duke doesn't mean that, or rather, I mean... That's like worlds away from his thought. The Duke hardly has like the cherished plan to turn Arrakis into a garden planet, right? That's not his number one goal. He's more interested in more, more uh, 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 things a little nearer, right, to him in time. Um, again, this is just political machinations on the Duke's part and presumably on Jessica's part. Leto's attention was caught by the expression on Kynes's face. The man was staring at Jessica. He appeared transfigured, like a man in love, or caught in a religious trance. Kynes's thoughts were overwhelmed at last by the words of prophecy, and they shall share your most precious dream. He spoke directly to Jessica. Do you bring the shortening of the way? Again, the prophecy fulfilled. Um and fulfilled in a spectacular way this time. Um, again, the prophecy itself, pretty generic, right? They shall share your most precious dream. Oh, the future Benjamin can probably work with that one, right? All she has to do is figure out what their most precious dream is and then be like, ah, oh, I share your, right? I mean, it would be easy to, to engineer that. But she didn't engineer that. They don't know what his most precious dream is, right? They've hit on it. By accident, not exactly by accident, but but again, she doesn't know this is his most precious dream. This is the secret of secrets, right? This is what the Fremen are hiding. This is why the Imperial bases are so sensitive, because Kynes has a dream. The dream to make Arrakis into a garden planet. Nobody knows that, and here they've just said it, right? And so this, to him, is a complete confirmation. He is now overwhelmed at last by the words of prophecy. Kynes at this point, how I take that line, is that Kynes at this point is going to stop resisting, right? He is now convinced they are the ones. They are. The, the prophecy is real, and they are the fulfillment of it. And he expresses this by speaking to Jessica now, not as Jessica Right, uh, the concubine of, of of Duke Leto, but rather as the one, right, as the the Reverend Mother who was to come, as the fulfillment of the prophecy, and he says to her, "Do you bring the shortening of the way?" 
strange question, which fortunately nobody else at the dinner party pays any attention to. Jessica crossed Toledo, slipped her hand under his arm to get a moment in which to calm herself. Kynes had said the shortening of the way. In the old tongue, the phrase translated as Kwisatz Haderach. The planetologist's odd question seemed to have gone unnoticed by the others, and now Kynes was bending over one of the consort women, listening to a low-voiced coquetry. Kwisatz Haderach, Jessica thought. Did our missionaria protectiva plant that legend here too? The thought fanned her secret hope for Paul. He could be the Kwisatz Haderach. He could be. Um... Notice what just happened with Jessica? Um, the plant. Do you bring the shortening of the way? Presumably he is he is repeating something which is part one of the formulas which has been planted by the missionary protective. At least that's what she suspects, right? That that phrase, the shortening of the way, has been included there. The phrase translated as Kwisatz Haderach. Notice how Jessica applies this. When she hears this, she doesn't say, ah, shortening of the way. Remember that was the thing that she, how she responded when the Shaddat Mabe said the thing must take its course. She's like, the thing must take its course. It's a keyword, right? It's a code. Through that phrase, I can understand that this is, you know, prophecy number 14, right? It enables me to decode this and therefore know how to play up to it. Shortening of the way seems to operate, but that's not the conclusion she comes to, right? She doesn't say, oh, they planted that legend here. Oh, yeah, well, I know just how to... No. She's like, he could be the Kwisatz Haderach. Paul might be the... Wait, does she believe in it? Right? Is she willing to... It's a sham prophecy. If on the one hand she's saying, the missionary protectiva planted that, that means she knows it's bogus, Right? And yet, she takes Kind's apparent faith in the fact that Paul is the fulfillment of the prophecy and his use of the phrase, the shortening of the way, as possible evidence to support the idea that Paul could be the Kwisatz Haderach. He could be. Maybe he is the shortening of the way. Maybe he is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Um... Sharon Powell says, but don't the Bene Gesserit have prophecies that they do believe in? Yeah, they believe in the coming of the Kwisatz Haderach, right? That's what their genetic planning is all for. But again, these are the prophecies that they planted. And I don't see, there's nothing to indicate that these prophecies that they planted are things that they really believe to be prophecies of things to come, right? The point of them, I mean, everything that's been said to us about the Missionaria Protectiva, is that it's a sham, right? It's a sham to be manipulated at a later time. They're not planting their own deepest, most sacred beliefs in this sense, right? We shall share with you the prophecy that we too believe, right? So that you may join with us in awaiting the Kwisatz Haderach. That's not how the Bene Gesserit operates. Clearly not how they operate, right? They're planting this stuff so that the, 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 the credulous, untutored locals can be manipulated by the sophisticated Bene Gesserit who comes later on. That's the spirit in which Jessica approaches it. That's how she understands it. Well, that's how she understood it before, right? Now, she seems potentially uh, to have to be thinking about this 
a little bit differently. Um, uh, anyway, I'll let you guys go. I've kept you more than long enough. Um, next time, the betrayal, the battle, the realizations. Um, read through the end of part one. There will be lots and lots and lots to talk about. So I think that next time, I'm just going to try talking much, much faster um, to see if we can get through everything that we need to get through. Um, but, um, you know, it might work, might not work. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, thanks, everybody. Uh, and I will see you guys next week. Bye.